Huntington AG Church. If this is your first Sunday with us, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, and it also doesn't normally look like this. This is all of our excitement for Kids Camp, which starts tomorrow. And we are really excited, as you've heard multiple times from the stage today. This whole decor, the stage, the lobby, if you were down in kids' church, um, you can see it everywhere, is such a great example of what we've been preaching and teaching on in this Holy Spirit Gifts series. Each of you, all of us, are gifted by our abilities, our, what we're affirmed and excited about, and then what others see in us, and that middle spot we call the Holy Spirit Gifts that we are empowered to do to build up one another. And over the last two weeks or so, we have been able to see so many of you use your gifts of decoration and art and organization and vision to do things I can't do. I can teach. I can't make a beautiful wave art. I can't make a whale. I can hang a shark above the staircase, but I can't do much else when it comes to decoration. You can, and many of you are gifted in many different ways, even Steve using financial and administrative gifts to lead our church. We are better when we all bring our gifts into the church. Amen? We need each other. I need you. We need to walk hand in hand. Another extension of that is if you are a member, a reminder again, right after service, we'll be voting on two new elders onto our elder board, both David and Elizabeth Sherry. So hang around afterwards for that. If you're watching the service online, you can go into this week's weekly email and you can click that link and join us via Zoom and contribute as well. If you'll allow me to read 1 Corinthians 14, this will be our passage this morning as we walk through Paul's teachings, one of his teachings on the gifts from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through chapter 14. Today we're looking at verses 1 through 12 in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul writes this, let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives especially the Spirit to prophesy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God, since people won't be able to understand you. You will be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. But one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, comforts them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. I wish you all could speak in tongues, but even more, I wish you all could prophesy, for prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues, unless someone interprets what you are saying so that the whole church will be strengthened. Dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? But if I bring you a revelation or some special knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. Even lifeless instruments like the flute or the harp must play the notes clearly or no one will recognize the melody. And if the bugler doesn't sound a clear call, how will the soldiers know they are being called to battle? It's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand, how will they know what you are saying? You might as well be talking into empty space. There are many different languages in the world and every language has meaning. But if I don't understand a language, I will be a foreigner to someone who speaks it, and to the one who speaks it will be a foreigner to me. And the same is true for you. Since you are so eager to have the special abilities that the Spirit gives, 
Seek those that will strengthen the whole church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit is speaking to each of us and to us collectively to encourage, strengthen, challenge, and to lead us to your beautiful Son, Jesus Christ. May we see you and be empowered by you in the reading this morning. Amen. Uh, I've been preaching for almost 19 years now. My first time ever preaching, actually on this stage, because I grew up in this church, was at 17 years old. I was a senior in high school, and I was interning. Whatever that means when someone's interning in a youth ministry, I, I don't know what that means, but I was interning, which meant I ran a lot of errands uh, and planned a lot of games. But also, as part of my internship, I preached one time on this stage on a Sunday morning. And I recall that sermon. I still remember particular parts of it. I preached on Acts chapter 2, and I talked about community, and I talked about the fact that Peter wasn't preaching alone. He had a community around him, and I talked about we're better together, which is apropos for the series. And in it, I went on wild tangents, and I had at one point this humorous illustration about Mother's Day and getting your mother the wrong gifts, like a hammer, or I remember it came to me in the moment, a speedboat, which makes no sense, and I just kind of rolled with it. And by the end of the sermon, I had gotten a lot of laughs, a lot of response, and people were very kind to me afterwards. And I talked to the associate pastor that next week, who used to be my youth pastor when I was younger, and I was kind of asking how he felt about it. And he said, you know, he was being very encouraging, and he said, have you ever thought about being a stand-up comedian? You were so funny on stage. And to some degree, that was really encouraging, but honestly, a part of it gutted me because I wanted to be a preacher. I wanted to be a teacher and a preacher, and I felt like I was called and gifted to teach, and him saying I could be a stand-up comedian felt almost like he was telling me I wasn't gifted to do this. I was maybe gifted to do something else. I've also taken it as a learning lesson that I probably was going for the laugh more than pushing the Scripture forward, and I have a tendency to do that at times. So, learning that. But as we bring our gifts together, remembering that our gifts aren't self-serving or to bring attention onto us, but they are to strengthen and to encourage the body of believers. As we together are encouraging each other's gifts, recognizing it, declaring it when you see it. Boy, you're so gifted in that. Wow, Steve, you added those two numbers together on the fly. You are clearly gifted in financials. Or Caitlin, you are clearly gifted in decoration and putting things together and visuals to be able to encourage this in each other. But then for each of us, to be thinking about and praying about, God, where have you gifted me? What abilities do I have? And how can I be using them to strengthen and encourage others for our church to know and understand Jesus Christ more fully and more clearly? In 1 Corinthians 14, this is the passage we just read and we're going to be teaching through this morning. Understanding what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, it is a very diverse church. We've talked about this in the series. It's also a church really open to practicing the giftings. For many of us today in our context, particularly here in the East Coast in New Jersey, um, our problem is not practicing too many of the gifts. It's often we're not practicing them at all, and we're kind of staunch and go through our business and not as open to the feeling and the moving of the Spirit. That's not the case in Corinth. 
They're open to it, and they're going at it chaotically. They're prophesying all the time, talking over each other. People in service, and the pastor's trying to preach, or someone's trying to give a word in a house church, and then someone starts speaking in tongues, and someone else is declaring in tongues, and maybe someone's leading a song, and someone else has, I have a word, and it's chaos in their services. And this is largely what Paul is addressing, particularly here in chapter 14. He says repeatedly, it's so good to operate in the gifts. It's so important to be doing it. But do it so that it's strengthening each other. Do it in decency and order. Do it to build everybody. The vision that's given for a Sunday service shouldn't be then redirected immediately in service by multiple different visions and directions. I'm really encouraged because we have these cards on your seats. I feel God speaking to me. Um, And somebody shared a word this morning that we'll give space for during the altar time at the end of service. And what I love is that it's right in line with where the rest of what we've been praying and teaching and searching as a church. When the Holy Spirit is moving in us, that's how it works. Paul is saying this to the church in Corinth. In chapter 12, he's saying you're very diverse. Chapter 13, which we'll look at next week, we're going to have a lot of fun with because our kids are going to help us at the end of Kids Camp teach that week on love. And then this 14, chapter 14, is about using the gifts in order and intentionality to strengthen and encourage. I'll give you a rundown again of the spiritual gifts, just a a brief overview. I'm not going to go in detail like we did the first week, but there are four basic categories of spiritual gifts or three categories and one sort of non-category. The first are motivational gifts, and these are the gifts you largely see in what we consider ministry on a Sunday morning, these sort of giftings. There are spiritual gifts, And these are the gifts that really work pastorally, not pastoring, but discerning and leading in small groups and discipling with one another. There are ministry gifts, and these are the gifts that help the whole church work together and move forward and administrate and organize and work. And then there are four other gifts that come from different passages that are hard to kind of categorize, like celibacy or poverty, martyrdom. They're the ones that aren't, you're not, you don't really want to be probably be seeking these, but God does put these into different men and women's lives and empower you to live that way. And Paul says that they are gifts. If you would like to have a better understanding of spiritual gifts, we uh, deep dove two weeks ago on our midweek formation night, and our last midweek formation night, we won't have one this Wednesday because of kids camp. Well, midweek formation is serving at kids camp. The following week, we are going to close out the series by deep diving, looking at our gifts, praying together and discerning how God can be using each of us to better empower and work out the vision of our church. I will tag in the next two weeks' emails um, a little survey that you can take if you want some direction specifically over maybe where your giftings would be or what the Holy Spirit is bringing out of you. The survey is not Scripture, it's a guide, but can be really helpful to organize and look at, oh yeah, I am gifted here, God has been working and strengthening me in this way. But let's dive into the text. 1 Corinthians 14, God gives us, this is my look at it, God gives us abilities to build up and encourage each other. God gives us abilities, we all have them. And those abilities are given to build up and encourage, not to lord over, tear down, and correct, but to build up and encourage. Let's look back at 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 3 again. Paul says, 
Let love be your highest goal. He says, let love be your highest goal. And then he says, but you should also desire. They are actually in sequential order and order of importance. The Greek actually, the let love is the highest imperative. This is the most important. He said, let love be your highest goal. You should be seeking love, the love of others, lovingly caring for them, growing in your love for each other. That should be your number one thing that you seek. He says, but it's also helpful and helpful to love others to seek the gifting. So he says, it's better to love, but also seek the gifts. If you've grown up in charismatic or Pentecostal circles, you can sometimes see people get these out of order, right? And they're using some of their gifts not to be the most loving person. Paul says, love first. But you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives you, especially the ability to prophesy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you'll be talking only to God, since people won't understand you. But you'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it'll be mysterious. The one who prophesies strengthens, encourages, and comforts others. He says prophecy is the highest goal. Now, for us in the modern world, this is a little confusing because we don't necessarily operate in this regularly. It feels strange or like an office of a person who dresses sort of like an ancient person or maybe wears rags and is outside is eccentric. You may hear this and you may think, well, is he telling the people of Corinth that they need to predict the future more? Is that what he's asking them, to be more mystical future tellers? They have crystal balls and are predicting. Is he telling them to go outside the church, get on their soapboxes, and preach to people, repent or you're going to burn? Is this what he means? Our modern construction of the idea of prophecy is often out of alignment with the overall biblical practice of the prophetic. In the modern world, we have a perception of prophets. I'm going to walk through a couple historic examples and a few more modern that you may remember. You probably won't remember that in 1213 AD, Pope Innocent III predicted that Islam was the beginning of the end times. This is during the Crusades, during the Holy War, the third act of the Crusades. He says, this is the beginning of the end. Islam is going to come, Christ will return, the epic battle is going to happen, and it's all over. He was about, at least we know, 800 years off in his prediction of that. We're still here. He was incorrect. In 1806, I wrote this one. It's not a famous one. I just think it's funny. There is a prophet chicken called the Hen of Leeds in England. She would lay eggs, and her eggs would say on them, Jesus Christ is returning. This became a huge thing in England. People would travel to see this chicken. They would ask the chicken for prophetic words. The chicken would then lay eggs that said the same thing. They later found that the farmer was writing on the eggs, and that was the prophetic word from the Hen of Leeds. In 1999, as we were trying to party like Prince encouraged us to, we were also nervous about Y2K. 
If you lived through this or you remember this, if you're over the age probably of 30, you remember living through the fear, genuine fear people had, and in Christian churches, ah, Y2K, it's going to be the end. Christ is going to return. We thought all of our computers were going to fail because people forgot to put zeros in the bylines of calendars. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. How many of you remember waiting up on New Year's and kind of with a little bit of like, what's going to happen? I did that. I watched Dick Clark, and I was also like, Dick, help me. What's going to happen? The Mayan calendar in 2012 became another thing. That everybody's like, oh, the Mayans predicted this. The calendars are different than ours. So 2012, all we got from that was a mediocre movie about this. The world didn't end in 2012. It was 10 years ago. We're still here. And then in the last few years, we had prophecies on TV, prophecies around the pandemic, prophecies around elections, all of which, living today, we know were incorrect. Even some famous evangelical prophets published apologies that they were wrong or that they were off on their prophetic words. This is the framework we often think about when we think of prophets, people predicting things around the future. And then for many people, we also then have a negative association of, well, they're, they're not right. This is, they're guessing at things, and they're trying to draw up fear, and we bring this idea into it. In Scripture, 90% or more of prophetic words are not future-oriented. They are temporal, they are active, and they are immediate. It is someone speaking to another on behalf of the Holy Spirit speaking through them and saying, you're off, man. You're leading in the wrong direction. God has a different direction. You've been ignoring the word of what God has said. You have way too many wives. That is not what God called you to do. You should not be partnering with this foreign nation. God has empowered us ourselves. You should not be sacrificing your children. It's weird that I have to tell you this, but God is giving you a word. This is repeatedly the pattern in Scripture. The prophetic are people empowered by God to be speaking to others and reminding about God's will for our lives, God's collective will for us and God's individual will for each of us. Rarely is it a prediction of the future. It is men and women speaking to each other what God is putting on their heart and giving guidance and direction. J.I. Packer says it like this in his book on charismatic giftings. He says, the essence of prophecy is not foretelling or prediction, but forthtelling, proclamation. And this regularly meant application of revealed truth rather than augmentation of it. And it's J.I. Packer, so you're probably like, what the heck is he talking about? What he's saying is the prophetic is now and not future. And what that means is it's encouraging us about how we're living as the church right now not about what we should be expecting in the future. It's God speaking for us now, not waiting for what God's going to do. Now, God does speak sometimes towards the future and speak through people prophetic words in the future, and the book of Revelation does exist in the latter portion of Daniel. This is God speaking future-oriented. But Deuteronomy 18 gives us a framework because you may have an understanding. I have this understanding. I am born and raised, died in the wool, dedicated as a Pentecostal Christian, and so I believe the Holy Spirit speaks through men and women and works through us, but you may also have an understanding of what's the deal with the people who I really feel like are not genuine and are just 
using this or manipulating this or have a TV show about this? Well, Deuteronomy gives us some encouragement. Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 through 22. This is Moses working as a prophet and giving a word to the Israelites about people who give prophetic words. He says, but you may wonder, how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? If the prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. Pretty obvious. If they predict something, it doesn't happen, they're not a prophet. That prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. Now, to be clear, there are other passages where Moses says you should kill them. I did not choose that passage because I'm not really sure how we would implement that. Um, or if we should. But I think that this is a really encouraging word for us. People may say things that drum up fear. You should be afraid because this is going to happen or this is going to happen or, or where it's going to say, and I, I have power. Thus saith the Lord can be a powerful tool to encourage, but oftentimes a powerful tool to intimidate or control. And what Moses says, what God is speaking through him is if someone is working the prophetic and it doesn't align with the body of Scripture of what God has already said, if it's not lining up with what the community is affirming, if it's not coming true and not aligning with it, he says, just ignore them. Move on. Move on. Don't take that person serious anymore. Just move on. Don't worry about it. Worry more about what I am doing than what I'm not doing. And if someone has shown that they are not hearing me correctly, it's okay. Move on. Don't be afraid, and don't let them intimidate you. Important, he says, Paul gives us this framework. He says a prophetic word will strengthen, will encourage, and will comfort those. A prophetic word is not meant to create fear and intimidation, worry and concern. It is meant to strengthen, encourage, and comfort those. Having said that, strengthening the church and strengthening each other often is calling out sin, which may not feel very strengthening in the moment, but it is. A call to repentance in the Christian body is an act of strengthening. It's pulling out our sin and our pride, and it is returning us back to the foot of the cross, strengthening us by calling us back to Christ, encouraging us in that a prophetic word should be kind. Even a word of correction should be kind. Even a challenge of pride and sin should be kind. It should be encouraging and with love. We teach when we're talking about the prophetic and on our midweeks as we've been walking through this that we don't really favor the language of thus saith the Lord when giving a prophetic word, but rather I feel God is speaking or I sense God is saying. Does this also resonate with the Spirit in you? Does this also resonate with the Spirit in the rest of us praying? I'm discerning this. I could be wrong. But is it resonating with you as well? Coming in with gentleness to encourage. And then third, comfort, to bring comfort. It will and always should point us to love, to the love of Christ, the value He has in us. I would say most of any of the prophetic words I've ever felt God speak through me have been loving, have been about someone's love and care. I distinctly remember praying over a young man once, um, who had scars. I could visibly see the scars on his neck and shoulders. Not sure what from. I didn't know him very well, but I felt that God said, 
I want to heal the scars. And I was like, yeah, obviously, they're right there. And he said, no, the scars that are on his heart. And I said, okay. So I shared that word with him and that God wanted to heal those scars in him. Um, and we had a powerful time of praying and, and weeping and working it through together. The prophetic word should be comforting and loving, drawing us back to the great comforter in Christ Jesus and his spirit. Second thing, let's continue on in the passage. The Holy Spirit strengthens us personally and communally. And those are different things, and not to get them confused. The Holy Spirit strengthens you personally in times of personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit empowers and strengthens us communally when we come together. Let's see it in 1 Corinthians 14. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. I wish that you could all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish that you could all prophesy. For prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues, unless someone interprets what you are saying so the whole church can be strengthened. Dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help? But if I bring you a revelation or some special knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. If you couldn't hear me clearly, the Bible's also being read to you. Okay, three times in this passage, this particular group of scriptures, Paul says strengthen. He uses the word strengthen. It's strengthening you to bring strength into you. The Holy Spirit is not there to weird you out. Holy Spirit is not there to make the, arms on your, the hair on your arms stand up. The Holy Spirit is not there to empower or control. The Holy Spirit is there to strengthen our faith to strengthen our resolve and belief that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. To strengthen to say, I know without a doubt that my Savior lives because his Spirit is speaking and working through me. I know without a doubt that Jesus Christ is moving and working in the vision of our church when the Holy Spirit is speaking and working in our community. The Holy Spirit strengthens personally. We see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Paul writes this to a, a later church in Romans. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. This means with the Holy Spirit in you and on you, and if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. He's in you, working through you. He is with you. And what Paul is saying is you may be praying, and if you've ever had a time of prayer where you didn't know what to pray, I've had that. You're like, you listed everything. You went through all the bones of the body as you're praying for your grandma, and then you're like, I don't know. I, I don't know what else to pray. And you can sit in silence and invite the Holy Spirit to speak through you and to you not even necessarily with words, with a sigh of relief, with a groan of conviction, with excitement building in you for what God is speaking in the future. I distinctly remember a moment in college, I was praying for a friend who repeatedly, I, I thought, was making foolish decisions. And I was praying, and I was praying to God saying, make him make different decisions, um, I'm praying for him to change his mind. I was basically trying to strong-arm God to strong-arm my friend, right? And that's sometimes how we think of our prayer life. And I kind of felt like I was running out of energy and running out of strength. 
And so I quieted and I said, all right, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say? And I distinctly remember a sense of God saying, my Holy Spirit lives in him as well. Why don't you pray that he would hear my voice? And maybe that's enough. I said, okay, I'm going to sit in silence and I'm going to trust that your Holy Spirit is at work as well. The Holy Spirit is given to strengthen us individually. If you've ever had God work a charismatic gift in you, your faith is strengthened in the moments afterwards. Yeah, all right, God does work. Wow, he did that. He answered that. He spoke to that. I'm reading scripture, I'm meditating, and this passage, boom, jumps out. My faith is encouraged and strengthened. And then the Holy Spirit strengthens us communally. Now, this one's a little harder, and for many of us, a little stranger. I'm going to look at three passages to try and we define biblical prophecy. Let's try to define biblical tongues. You may be unfamiliar with this phrase. Tongues, or the Greek phrase, gosolalia, um, of divine angelic speaking, um, is a pattern we see in Acts and a pattern that Paul teaches in the New Testament. We see it first and distinctly in Acts chapter 2, verse 11. It says both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. The Holy Spirit is speaking through people. They're speaking in languages they don't know themselves. They're speaking in some dialect that is working in Iran, and they're speaking in another dialect that's down in Ethiopia, and another dialect that's over in Spain, and they're speaking in these different dialects of languages that they don't know themselves, but the Holy Spirit is speaking through them. And we see it encouraging and strengthening the God-fearers, the Jews that have come here to worship, because they are hearing God declared in their own language in a mysterious, transcendent manner that is not manufactured. In 1 Corinthians 14, we see Paul say that if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. Well then, what should I do? I will pray in the spirit, and I will also pray in words I understand. I will sing in the spirit, and I will also sing in words I understand. I will seek the Holy Spirit to work through us. And the Holy Spirit can work and has at times, even in our church body, been manifested in this way. If someone's speaking a language they don't know, perhaps a foreign language that we don't know, or an angelic language that nobody knows. And what Paul says here is, if that happens, someone else should interpret it. Otherwise, it's not helping. That may sound harsh, but he said, what good is it? If everybody's like, well, I don't know what happened. But that if someone else can then say, this is what God is speaking in this moment. This is what I'm discerning in this moment. It strengthens the church by the same way that it personally strengthens by showing us God is real and moving and working. When God manifests in a way that obviously is not constructed by a clever sermon or an excellent singing voice, but by a demonstration of transcendent, mysterious power, we can say in the room, God is real. He's moving and he's working. I can't explain that away. And then John 4, 24, Jesus teaches us, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, as we come together, we are worshiping physically with our voices, with our arms raised, maybe even getting on your knees during worship. We are also worshiping in our spirits 
when we invite the Holy Spirit to be moving and working in us, to be discerning a spiritual word, to be speaking an encouragement, empowering another, healing, divine knowledge, these acts are strengthening to the church body. They are demonstrations that the Holy Spirit is active and working. Tongues is the most clearly defined public gifting to demonstrate that. It is oftentimes rare, and as Paul says, in public works, it needs to be accompanied by an interpretation. So if you're praying or you hear someone praying and they're praying in tongues, that's their private gifting by the Spirit to be praying in tongues. But if someone's declaring out loudly in a worship setting, an altar setting, a word in tongues, that's a public gifting that we should expect someone to interpret. It should strengthen us communally. But then Paul gives this layout. I think this is a helpful framework that can sometimes be confusing. He says it here in 1 Corinthians verse 6. He says, But if I bring you a revelation or some special knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. I love the simple colloquial nature of this phrase. Not that would be transcendently powerful, that would be salvific, and that would be empowering. He says, it'd be helpful. That'd be a good thing. That'd be helpful to each other. And I love that his phrasing even moves in a gradient from what we would consider mystical to what we would consider practical. Revelation. Yeah, nothing feels more churchy and mystical than revelation. A a divine revelation of God speaking to us. And then special knowledge. It's special. It comes from somewhere else. I'm sharing it with you. Prophecy. We already talked about this. And then just teaching. He puts them all in the same grouping, in a gradient. He's like, these are the really mystical ends of it. This is the really practical end of it. But all of this should be done to be helpful to the body of believers. should be done to be helpful to building up our faith, to leading us to Jesus, and to loving the world and the community into relationship with Jesus. In fact, we'll talk about this next week. In chapter 13, Paul says, if it's not helpful, I don't care at all. If you could do wonderful, miraculous things and it's not helpful, I don't care. You're just being a distraction. It must be for the building of the church. Lastly, the last grouping of verses... I want to encourage, and this has been a journey for me growing up in our tradition, the Holy Spirit is not an agent of chaos. The Holy Spirit is not an agent of chaos. I have been in services where I feel like either articulated or inarticulated, that was the message that the Holy Spirit is an agent of chaos. You don't know when to expect or what he's going to do or how he's going to do it. And I'm sitting in the back row and I'm like, please, nobody come over and give me a divine word. And they're like, you're going to get a divine word. We had a cousin who came up for prayer and a person was praying over them and they were praying and they just, he, he was really eager to receive some sort of revelation. And the person started praying and they said, thank you for Africa and Asia. Thank you for Africa. He was 12 at the time. Thank you for Africa. And then he stopped and he goes, you're going to Africa and Asia. And he was like, oh no, I don't, what do I do? I didn't plan for this. This is sometimes what we think. Like the Holy Spirit's going to do something I wasn't expecting. He's going to change my life and he's going to overturn everything I've planned. Sometimes that does happen when we have planned poorly 
and when we have not been listening to the Spirit throughout. But the Holy Spirit's job is not to be chaotic and overturn and change and ruin things in our lives. The Holy Spirit is an agent of order. It's literally the first experience we have of the Holy Spirit is in Genesis chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. Waters in Hebrew are a metaphor for chaos. The Holy Spirit is hovering over chaos and bringing order to what is chaotic. Coming together as a church is chaotic. We all have our own thoughts, feelings, agendas, burdens, baggage, dreams that we are bringing into this community, our ethnic backgrounds, our assumptions and presuppositions, and we're bringing these in together and trying to work together as a community. And then we use the term family, and then we hope that that kind of solves all of it. But oftentimes, we don't feel like a family. It feels like a random, chaotic jumbling of people who want and feel and perceive things differently. And Paul says the Holy Spirit is given for this purpose because it is so chaotic and the Christian movement has been the most diverse and far-reaching community in all of human history. He says that's not going to work just on your own human strength. You will need the Holy Spirit in you to bring unity and to help strengthen the faith of the church. You will need a moment where somebody prays over you and what they're praying is exactly what was in your heart. You will need a moment where you are trying to work something in a small group, in a ministry setting, and you just can't do it. And someone else from the church comes right alongside you and has the exact right giftings to move that forward. You will need the moment where you've kind of given up hope on God answering or opening a door for you and another member of the church comes in and says, I've been there. This is what the other side looks like. We need the Holy Spirit to bring order to the chaos of living life together. As Paul writes, even lifeless instruments like the flute or the harp must play the notes clearly or no one will recognize the melody. And if the bugler doesn't sound a clear call, how will the soldiers know they're being called to battle? It's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand, how will they know what you're saying? You might as well be talking in empty space. There are many different languages in the world and every language has meaning. But if I don't understand a language, I will be a foreigner to someone who speaks it. And the one who speaks it will be a foreigner to me. And the same is true for you since you are so eager to have the special abilities the Spirit gives, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. Paul is using beautiful, metaphorical imagery. If I'm closing out my sermon and the keyboardist comes up to guide at the end of it and is playing chaotically dissonant notes, it is not helping move us forward. If we are working towards a goal of a kid's camp, we are moving towards a goal of kingdom builders projects, if we are moving towards a goal of leading people to Jesus, if we are moving towards a goal of becoming a loving Christ-centered community, we need to work together in unity towards that. 
Kids camp is the first thing we've done in over three years that's this sort of size and scope. And I'll be honest, even as pastor here, I forgot of all of the side benefits of things like this, of seeing us all united together in one vision, pooling towards one goal, everybody using their gifts, coming alongside of each other. And it's a kid's camp. It's not necessarily, you know, the dramatic prophetic gifts. It's working with kids, working in our community, and to see us all working together, playing the same notes, playing harmonious melodies to create a song. As Paul says, if we're speaking different languages, I believe he's talking literally about tongues, but I also believe he's talking metaphorically. He says, if you're talking in languages each other doesn't understand, if you're talking French and they only speak English, but also if you're talking with a cultural lens of only your life and existence that someone else doesn't understand, they feel like a foreigner, and you look like a foreigner. And in the church that I've brought together by my life and death and resurrection, you are to be one unit together. He says the Holy Spirit should drive you to that unity, to being able to discern together. The power of praying together and discerning together, discerning what is God speaking, what is God working Where is he moving us? In Corinth, they are shouting over each other. They're all working in their gifts. At the same time, without direction, and it's nutso. And Paul's like, whoa, here's some rules. Here's some order. Let's put this together. I think for us and many of us in the modern church, our chaos is not everybody operating in their gifts at the same time, but is a lot of us afraid or scared to bring our gifts into the church. And the chaos is we don't know where we fit and how to work together and how, how useful we can be and how to encourage each other. And to that end, too, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 39 and 40, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. When you hear that, I want you to hear. Be eager to hear God speaking through you a word for someone else. Don't hear it and think out in the woods screaming. Think, be eager to hear God's voice sharing a word for someone else in your church body. Be eager to do that service for them to be useful in that way, to intercede for them. And don't forbid speaking in tongues. Lean into the things that feel mystical and different. They remind us that God is real and active. But be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Be sure that everything is moving forward to give glory to Christ Jesus and to love his image bearers in the church and outside of it. If you'll allow me to pray over you today. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. 
I pray, if I can be so bold today, that there are members of this church, there are those attending in the room this morning who will receive a word from you, who will hear your voice speaking to them and through them today. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us. I want to give a moment as well. If you're in the room today, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You haven't made that decision in your life, or maybe it was a really long time ago and you feel like you've lost that. I want to give you a chance just to pray that prayer and take a step of faith into relationship with Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, use it as a moment to recommit and reevaluate. May the Holy Spirit lead us to Jesus. Jesus, in this moment, I believe that you are Savior, you are Lord, you are God. And I believe that you came to this earth and you lived a perfect life, that you valued all humanity, and that you took our sins, my sins, our sins, upon yourself onto the cross. You died instead of us. You died in place of us. You were in the grave three days. On the third day, you rose. And in rising from the dead, you conquered sin and death, that we may never be afraid of it again. Jesus, I trust in you. You gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to follow you, to know you, and to meet with you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. In a moment, we're going to go into song. I'm going to open up the altar space here and invite you to seek the Holy Spirit, to seek the Spirit to speak to you, speak through you, to encourage you, and as Paul says, to strengthen your faith to strengthen you in who Christ Jesus is, that he loves and values you and has a plan for your life, that he has called you into this family of Christ Jesus, and that you would be discerning the gifts the Holy Spirit has put on you and is working through you. To that end, um, Olivia shared a word from the Holy Spirit that she felt God put on her heart during worship, and I want to invite her just to be able to share that this morning. Um, yeah, so when we were praying for service, um, I felt the Lord put on my heart, um, just in regards to kids' camp, um, having an unashamed childlike faith, um, and emphasizing and embracing unexpected movement from the Lord. Olivia shared that, the staff brought that up to me, and we discerned over, this is the same as our heart, same thing we discern God speaking to bring our children in to be unashamed because of the love of Christ on them. And may they realize how valued, loved, and cherished they are by his presence. I'm going to invite you to stand if you can all over the room. And we're going to open up the altar space. We're going to respond to this word from the Lord. And we're going to pray for more words, for encouragement, for direction, for empowerment and strengthening by the Spirit. Allow me to pray over you and the team will lead and our altar space will be open. Lord, we invite you in. Lord, we pray over our kids' camp coming up. May we, Lord, have your joy, your heart for children, 
to call them to you. May we be unashamed in loving and caring for others. And may we teach our children how deeply valued and set free and righteous they are because of you, Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that your love, forgiveness, and grace be permeating this building and our community as we pray and prepare. And Lord, we thank you that you speak through us today and we pray, God, to receive your spirit, to receive your presence, and may we be strengthened by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus as the team.